You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. chapter 4. Let's bow together as we open our time to study God's Word. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, believing as Your people that it is in these pages and these words that You have revealed Yourself and spoken to us. And we commit ourselves to the consistent study and application of this truth, but we know that we need Your help in order to do that. So we pray that Your Spirit would be here to guide us into truth, to give us understanding in it and the grace to be obedient to it. We pray that You'd be glorified this morning through our study as we as we partake together of this wonderful food, we do ask God that you would open our eyes to behold in your word wonderful things. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been talking about the subject of what to think about and how we are thinking and how we use our minds, and we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so I don't want to belabor the review more than is absolutely necessary, because here's what we've got ahead of us. Last week, we covered Philippians 4, verse 8, and only the first four of those eight qualities that are listed there that should characterize our thinking. And so during the last couple weeks, I've been thinking through in my mind and coming up with questions that sort of pop up in my thinking, questions about the text and about how we apply this and what are the implications of this. And so I want to make our way through the end of verse 8 and cover verse 9 and deal with all of those questions. And so you know we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning just in doing that. So just by way of review, we've been looking at the positive practice of applying the energies and efforts of our minds and the discipline of our thinking to certain things in order that we may be able to honor God with our minds and have a renewed mind. We want to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So we've been looking at what is it that we are to do in order to think rightly and to think on the right things. So we saw last week, Philippians 4 verse 8, that there are Basically, eight qualities that are listed. And we looked at the first four. We looked at true, honorable, right, and pure. True as opposed to that which is false or that which is not real. When we are finding ourselves thinking of things that are false about God or about us or about others or about His Word, we need to grab onto those thoughts and replace them and discipline our minds to think on those things which are true, not things that are false. We looked at the word honorable. Honorable has the idea of being lofty or majestic or lifted up, something that inspires awe. And we talked last week about how is it that we apply that, thinking in our minds things that inspire awe in us, things that would be considered lofty. It's been an honor, actually I should say a privilege, it's been a privilege these last few weeks, actually been several months now, I've been taking my family through the book of Revelation in our, in our quiet time before we go to bed at night. And we've just been taking little chunks and we work our way through it and and read it and we discuss it and study it and kind of cross-reference and then we pray about things that we're reading. And we're toward the end of the book of Revelation now. We're in chapters 19, 20, and 21. And it has been such a joy to be thinking on the subject of heaven. What is heaven going to be like? 
And I always look forward to that every evening. Read a little something. We talk about what is the eternal state? What is it God's going to do when He wraps up this world and, and brings justice and the kingdom of Christ and the reign of Christ here on earth and the new heavens and the new earth? Those are the type of things that set our minds on things above, that inspire awe. Those are the type of things that should characterize our thinking. Then the third one was right. Not right as opposed to wrong, but right in the sense of righteous or just. And we saw that that word literally means that which is righteous or in keeping with God's righteous standards. And then we looked at the word pure. And I think that if we fall down, if statistics are true, then if we fall down anywhere along this list of eight qualities, it is probably in the area of moral and intellectual purity. And I was reminded this morning that it's not just men, because last week I addressed men and the subject of keeping your thoughts pure and thinking on pure things. But if statistics hold true, women are just as guilty of this as men are now. It used to be that this was a uniquely male issue, but that's not true anymore. The prevalence and the the, uh, availability of online smut and garbage and impurity now is affecting women just as much as it is men. Uh, Impure thoughts and immoral thoughts, vain imaginations and vile imaginations and vile thoughts are a drain on our marriage. They're a drain on our children. They're a drain on our relationship with the Lord, and they they just lead us to destruction. And if you entertain vile imaginations and vile thinking and impure thinking, then it will destroy you. You are partnering with the enemy in the destruction of your own soul. So we've got to stop it. Now that brings us up to the fifth quality. Whatever is lovely. That's the word that you find in the middle of verse 8. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Now I have to confess to you, the word lovely is not a word that falls off my lips very often. The English word lovely. I don't use that word. You'll never hear me come up to Drew and say, Drew, that's a nice pair of uh, a lovely camo pants that you're wearing today. Or to say to Jess, that's a lovely haircut that you have, Jess. I just don't use those terms. Maybe not be, might be because Drew doesn't ever wear lovely pants and Jess doesn't ever have a lovely haircut. But more than likely, it's simply because lovely just is not a word that men tend to use. But the word is not lovely in the sense of that which is dainty or uh, sort of effeminate or, or cute or quaint. It's not lovely in that sense that we would use it if you're wearing a lovely shirt. But it's prosphilet which is the word, it's actually two words in the Greek, pros meaning toward, it's a preposition, phileo, not meaning a piece of fish, but meaning love, like as in phileo, or brotherly love in Philadelphia. Toward love. And the word doesn't mean dainty or cute or lovely in the sense that we use the English word. The word means that which elicits feelings of love. That which would draw my heart toward love. That's the idea of the word lovely. Those things I am to think in my mind and meditate on those things which would elicit feelings, legitimate feelings of selfless, sacrificial, brotherly love for my fellow man and love for God. So what does that look like when we apply it? Well, if I find myself thinking about someone or something in a manner that makes my stomach churn in anger or resentment or bitterness, or if I find myself thinking of an individual in a way that does not draw out of me feelings of love or create in me feelings of love for that individual, then I need to stop it. I need to stop it. Now, it may not be that you need to stop thinking about that individual, your boss or your co-worker or your parents or your spouse or whoever it is. It might not be that you need to stop thinking about that individual, but that you need to start thinking things about that individual which will elicit feelings of love. It will draw your heart toward love. So it would look like this. 
If it's an unbeliever that I'm struggling with and I'm thinking wrong things about that individual which are not drawing my heart to love that individual, then I stop and I begin to think about that unbeliever. Look, this is a person who needs to be delivered. They're in bondage to their sin. What they really need is a Savior. And so I begin to pray for that individual, pray for their salvation, and think about them in a way that might cause me to love them. Or if it's a saved individual, then I begin to think of that person, not in terms that create anguish and disturbance in my soul or vexing in my spirit, but I begin to think of that person in terms of, that's a, that person is a child of God. That is my brother in the faith. That is an individual for whom Christ died. That is an individual who is forgiven. There's no condemnation to them. And they're a child of God adopted into the family of God just like me. And I'm going to spend eternity with that individual, whether I like them here or not. That's the way we ought to think. Think about that individual in terms that elicit or draw my heart towards love. Those would be lovely thoughts. Not, is it cute or quaint or does Drew have lovely pants on? But lovely in the sense is, does it elicit in me feelings of phileo, love, brotherly love and kindness for that individual and love toward God? There's a sixth quality. Anything that is of good repute. That's how the NASB translates it. If you have the King James, the New King James, it says of good reputation or of good repute. If you have the NIV, then it says, I think, admirable. Is that right? It has the word admirable. And listen, because you're not going to hear me ever say this very often, but I think the NIV is a better translation of that word. The NASB, the King James, the New King James, all translate it of good repute, giving the idea that we ought to think about things that have a good reputation or things that people speak well of. And it's in the passive sense they use that word. Better translated in the active sense of that which has the quality of being admirable. If something is admirable, then people speak well of it. And the idea is that which is intrinsically admirable. That which is intrinsically good. We ought to spend our time thinking on things and we ought to direct our mental energies towards things that are intrinsically good and admirable. Applied to your thoughts, it would look like this. If people were to look at my thoughts, and if people could see my thoughts, would they speak well of my thoughts and say, those are admirable thoughts? Would they see the goodness and the quality of them and thus speak well of them? You can earn a reputation through your actions as a blasphemer, a deviant, a pervert, an adulterer, a deceiver, a gossiper, a backbiter. You can earn a reputation by doing those actions. So here's my challenging question for you. If you were to live out every thought that you have, what type of reputation would you have? If you were to live out every thought that you spend your time and your energy thinking through, what would that do to your reputation? So all summed up, it's basically this. If people were to look at my thoughts, would they see them as good and speak well of them? Would they say those are noble thoughts? Now, the last two qualities, we've looked at true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute or admirable. The last two qualities are really category headings. The Apostle Paul goes from the specific to the general, and he says if there is anything that's excellent, and if anything worthy of praise. So those are sort of two category headings. Excellent, or the word excellent, really sums up pure, true, and right. And the idea of praiseworthy sums up honorable, of good repute, and lovely, anything that is praiseworthy or worthy of praise. So, since we've already covered the specifics, really this is summing it up, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the word excellent is a word that Peter uses to describe virtue and the excellencies of God in First Peter chapter 2, I think it is. So, when it's used of an individual in Scripture or an outside of Scripture, even another Greek text, 
it carries the idea of a moral implication. It speaks of that which is virtuous or morally good. So we might translate it, and some Bible translations do this, morally good or moral excellence. If there is anything that is morally excellent, morally virtuous, you are to think on those things. Not just things that are true and pure and right, but anything that has moral goodness to it ought to be the subject matter of your thoughts. And the second category heading, worthy of praise, sums up honorable and lovely and of good repute. And the idea here is not that God would praise you for your thoughts, but once again, if other people were to see between my ears what goes on, would they be able to speak well of my thoughts and be able to say, those are noble, those are good thoughts. Now that's convicting, isn't it? You know, the command comes at the end of the verse. Paul says, dwell on these things. And the word think, or the word dwell there, does not refer to just entertaining thoughts. Not like the type of thoughts that you have while you're watching a football game. It's not just the casual thinking. The Apostle Paul there is describing a purposeful, practical, active, intentional act of the will to think a certain way. The word can be translated to dwell on, to reason, to hold a certain opinion, to think a certain way, to have a certain pattern of thinking. All of those would be good translations of that word. The Apostle Paul is describing not just the passive sort of thoughts that run through our minds, but the active intention of my mind. And here's the key. The key to thinking right thoughts is not waging war against just bad thoughts, but it is filling my mind with the good things that push out the bad things. Let me give you a a practical application of this. I'm thinking a certain way about a certain individual. Say it's my boss. And I, there's a way of thinking about him. Doesn't I don't have any pure, or righteous, or good, or truthful thoughts about him whatsoever. But he just grates on me every day I go to work. And so I have this image in my mind, and I'm dwelling on that. Here's my responsibility. Not simply to say, Jim, don't think about your boss. Don't think about your boss. That'll never work. Like I told you a couple weeks ago. It's like trying not to think about the steak smothered in onions and mushrooms and with the baked potato. You can't simply tell your mind not to think about something because you'll find yourself thinking about it. What you have to do instead is grab a hold of your mind and say, by an act of my will, I will make my mind think on this instead. I will make my mind my slave. And I will make my mind think on things that will allow no other room for anything else to come into it. So if your problem is lust, or your problem is impure thoughts, so then rather than saying, don't think about that, don't think about that, instead you focus your mind on something that is pure. Your relationship with your spouse. The marriage bed with the Lord said is pure and honorable and undefiled and should be so. And it's righteous and good. So you begin to think on true things. Instead of trying just to keep yourself from thinking impure things, you focus on something that is honorable to the Lord, and you fill your mind with pleasing and honorable things which are right to Him. You say, well, Jim, what if I'm married? Then you find something else pure to think on. That's it. So it's an active, intentional act of the will. I make myself to think on these things. And I fill my mind with the things that Scripture says I should fill my mind with in order that there's not any room or any time left for me to think about other things. Now, that's tough, isn't it? You think that's difficult? Come easy for you? If I were to ask for a show of hands, I doubt if there's anybody here to say, oh yeah, I've never struggled a single thought. Never once had an impure thought. Never once had a struggling, bad, wrong, unrighteous thought toward any individual my whole life. Nobody would say that. It's a very difficult thing. And you and I might be tempted to say, well, it's easy for you to say, Jim. It's easy for you to say, Paul. And it's easy for all of us to say, isn't it? But we might ask, did Paul himself practice these things? 
And the answer is yes, and that's what verse 9 is about. Look at verse 9. The things that you have, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The things. What are the things that Paul is talking about? I think he's talking about not just what we think about in verse 8, but I think he's going all the way up to verse 4. Rejoicing always, knowing that the Lord is near, letting your gentle spirit be known to all men, not worrying, praying about everything and worrying about nothing, being thankful, disciplining the mind to think on these things. All of the things that he's been telling us in Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, these things you have learned and received from me. Those are words that have to do with oral instruction. What I'm doing to you or for you right now. I'm giving you instruction out of the Word of God and teaching you what Scripture says about a certain thing. That's what those words are used to refer to. But then Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. That's a different type of instruction. That's what type of instruction? That's the instruction of the life, right? So the Philippians would be able to listen to, read what the Apostle Paul says and say, yeah, he did, we did receive this from him. We did learn this from him. He taught us all about how to use our mind. But more importantly, we saw in Paul what it meant to discipline your mind and to think on holy and right and pure things. There should never be a dichotomy between what we know to be true in our minds and what we live out in our lives. There should never be that dichotomy. One of the greatest dangers for us is that you and I would sit here week after week and hear truth and give assent to truth and understand truth and know truth intellectually and then walk out of here and not do it. One of the greatest dangers. And the Apostle Paul did not want the Philippians to make the mistake of thinking that just because they were able to read this and understand it, that they therefore were practicing it. That's why he says, all of these things that you have seen in me, you've heard in me, you received them from me, you learned them from me, I want you to what? To practice these things. It never, ever is sufficient to simply assent to truth. It never is sufficient to simply concur with truth. To hear something true and say, I agree with that, that's not sufficient. Knowing everything that we've talked about in the last few weeks about the disciplining of our minds will never create in you a disciplined mind. Knowing it will never do it. Knowing everything that we've talked about is never going to get rid of worry in your life. It's never going to make you a prayer. It's never going to make you to rejoice always or to give you joy. Knowing all of these things is never going to do a whit of good for you at all, ever, unless you practice these things. That's why Paul says you practice them. You'll never create a disciplined mind, and you'll never have pure thinking just by knowing what we've talked about in Philippians 4. So Paul says you need to do it. You need to do it. You need to do these things. Now, is there, there is a blessing attached for those who would do it. Paul says the God of peace will be with you. Now, this whole chapter is about the peace of Christ. We talked about that at the beginning of the chapter. The first three verses, about peace in the congregation between individuals, Yodi and Syntyche, warring against each other. Paul wants peace amongst the people. But then verses 4 through 7, he's been talking about the peace that comes inside of ourselves, an individual peace in ourselves. and The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and minds. And then he says, if you practice these things, then the God of peace will be with you. This is the blessing for those who have a disciplined mind. Listen, the presence of the God of peace. He is our portion. He is our shield. He is our protector. And he is our guardian. And the God of peace will be with you. If you don't have a disciplined mind and you refuse to discipline your minds, listen, there is no promise that the God of peace will be with you. People who have undisciplined minds and people who have wayward thoughts and refuse to rein them in live in a state of constant turmoil. You live in a state of moral turmoil. 
when your mind and your conscience is being defiled and soiled continually, it's running away with you, and it's, it's creating in you impure thoughts and unrighteous thoughts and unrighteous deeds, and so you live in a total, total state of moral chaos. And then it creates a guilt turmoil, a turmoil of guilt. Because as God's people, you know that you're called to purity and to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And so you live in this constant state of guilt and under the plague that I can't do this and I haven't done this and it gets worse and worse. It's a constant state of turmoil. But Paul says when you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. That's the promise. If you do not practice these things, friends, you're not going to have peace. If you want peace in your circumstances, peace in your spirit, peace in your attitude, peace in your mind, peace of heart, peace in your conscience, then you have to practice these things. It's that simple. You have to do it. Now, that brings us to the end of the text. But it raises a few questions that popped up in my mind, and I want to give you three of the questions that I kind of thought of. Here's the first one. Is this to characterize all of my thoughts? Is this to characterize, Philippians 4, verse 8, to characterize every single thought that I have all day long? Because that would be tough, wouldn't it? Some of us have jobs that really do not lend themselves to Philippians 4, 8 type thinking. Your job is to clean a sewer or to pick up garbage or to, uh, to do an operation, or you're involved to your elbows in blood all day long because you're a doctor or a surgeon, or you're doing stuff with unbelievers constantly, and then you ask yourself, well, is that supposed to apply to every thought I have? Look, Jim, I'm a mom, and I'm nursing a child, and I'm changing diapers all day long, and I get nauseated by it. And how am I supposed to have thinking like this when I'm up to my elbows in diapers for most of the day? Or... I wake up and I start down a path of thinking or doing something, just my tasks for the day, and I find out that, man, these are not exactly the most lofty of thoughts. What about when I got the flu and I'm screaming Ralph into a bedpan? Am I supposed to, are all the thoughts that I have while I'm sick supposed to be a Philippians 4 verse 8 quality? Is that what Paul's talking about? If it is, I would never ever watch a football game. Because think about, and, and listen, if there's anything trivial in life, it's watching a football game, especially if your team is not in the playoffs. Talk about trivial. Now, if your team is in the playoffs, then it's not trivial. I understand it's very weighty and eternal issues that are at play. But if your team is not in the playoffs, it's trivial. And we can do a lot of things that are just simply trivial. Trivial thoughts that come into our mind. Is every thought that I ever have supposed to be qualified, uh, characterized in Philippians 4, verse 8? You want to know what I thought this morning when I stepped in the shower? And don't worry, some of you are shaking your head. No, this is safe for the whole family. This is what I was thinking. I was thinking to myself, I need to be sure that when I shave, that I get those little, those little hairs that are so elusive right under my right nostril. Never my left nostril, only my right nostril, and the right bottom part of my lip. Never the left side of my lip, but these little hairs that I can't get. And I have an electric shaver, and I can grind and grind and grind until I feel like I've been shaving with 60-grit sandpaper. And then I get out of the shower, and there they are. And if three or four days go by, I start to develop a little mini beard right here underneath my right nostril or right on the bottom of my right side of my lip. And so as I'm stepping into the shower, I'm thinking to myself, I need to make sure, because there's nothing more embarrassing than going to church and having a mini beard beneath your right nostril. It's a horrible thing. So that's what was going through my mind. But then I thought to myself, that's not Philippians 4 eight. Talk about mundane and trivial. I would not use any quality in Philippians 4 eight to describe the thoughts that I had as I stepped into the shower about shaving. So what am I to do? Well, let's back up for just a second and ask ourselves again, what is the Apostle Paul describing here? 
What he is describing is the cure for stinking thinking that robs our joy, makes us worry, and, and pollutes our mind. That's what he's describing. He is describing the, uh, we might put it this way, is it wrong, dishonorable, impure, immoral, dishonoring to God, not right or not true, for me to have thoughts about shaving? It's not, is it? There's nothing wrong with those thoughts. There's nothing wrong with knowing the score of a football game or, or following a team through the season. There's nothing wrong with harmless and innocent and pure entertainment or, or pure activities which are recreational. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But what is wrong is when I, I notice that my mind is taking me down a path that is not true. It's dishonorable to God. It's not right. It's not pure. It's not lovely. It's not good thinking. It's not excellent, morally excellent, and it's not praiseworthy. This is the prescription for that. That's when you stop and by an act of your will, you say, I will make my mind to think on this. So Paul is, in a sense, describing every thought that we have, but there are some thoughts that simply do not not qualify in Philippians 4a. And they're the mundane thoughts. No mother can say, well, until I can have pure and holy and lofty thoughts while I'm changing a diaper, I'm not going to change any diapers. You can't do that. You've got to be involved in the mundane activities of life. But Paul is talking about what do you do with your mind when your mind is making you to sin? This is what you do. You think on those things that will make in you a spirit and a mind that doesn't worry, that is joyful, that does have peace. The second question. Jim, in the last three weeks, and that would include today, you've talked a lot about what we do, what I'm supposed to do, what you do, our involvement in this, our effort and our work. So where in any of this is there room for the Spirit of God? Is it not the Spirit of God's job to produce this in me? Well, in a sense it is, and I have been talking about our work and our responsibility because the verse is addressed to us, not the Spirit of God. So I have been emphasizing our work and our responsibility. But we go back to Philippians 2 verse 13. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 4.8 is the application of that verse when it comes to the mind and renewing my thinking. I am to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling by thinking on these things and by disciplining my mind and bringing every thought captive and making my mind my slave. That's how I work out my own salvation mentally. But I also know, and I'm completely fine with this, and I believe this 100%, that it's God who is at work in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So here's how it breaks down. Does it all depend upon me? Well, in a sense, yes, because the Spirit of God is not going to control your mind unless you put forth the effort to do it. But in a sense, no, because even though you put forth the effort, it's the Spirit of God that is going to produce that work in you. So there's that balance again. You see the balance? I have to put forth the effort because the Spirit of God is not going to just wake me up one morning with a pure mind. I have to renew my mind by putting forth the effort. But here's the encouraging part. I know that in putting forth the effort, that I am not putting forth effort in vain, It's not going to be fruitless and it's not going to be useless. It will produce the intended fruit. Why? Because it's God who is at work in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So when the Spirit of God and I both decide that we want the same thing, and when the Spirit of God and I both intend to do the same thing, then it produces fruit. And so I do labor and strive. You do labor and strive. You have to labor and strive, but it's according to the power that is at work in you. Not just your own effort. You have to discipline your mind. So third question. How long is this going to take for me to get a renewed mind? The answer, the rest of your life. 
You will never reach a point where you no longer sin in thought. You'll never reach that point. You will never reach a point where you say to yourself, man, I haven't had a wrong thought in I don't know how many months. Now, here's the good news. It will get easier and it will get easier as time goes on. But it will never disappear entirely. Just like your tongue. If you're able to bridle your tongue, you'd be a perfect individual if you never never sinned in speech. So you're not going to ever get to the point where you never sin in word, thought, or deed. But you will get to the point where you gain more and more control over yourself, the members of your body, as they obey righteousness. And the more your mind is filled with truth, and the more you obey truth and understand truth and practice these things, then the God of peace will be with you. You'll never reach a point where you stop sinning. But listen, the battles for your mind will get less and less intense as time goes on. And the frequency with which you have to battle your mind will get less and less frequent as time gets goes on. You will always battle it, but it will get easier and easier and easier as time goes on. And pretty soon, you will find that things that once tempted you don't tempt you anymore. They lose their luster. You will find things that you once battled, you don't battle anymore. They don't even come into your mind any longer. So there is hope for us. But your mind is like a room in your house. The longer you let it go, the more work it's going to take to clean it up when you finally decide to clean it up. And some of you have lived 40, 50, 60 years and you've never disciplined your mind. You've never put forward any effort. You've got a lot of work to do. It's going to take work. It's not impossible, but it's going to take work. And if you're a teenager or a young child here, you need to start now and, and get a jump on it. Because the longer you let your mind go, the more you allow your thoughts to become unruly, the more work it takes to bring rule to them and to discipline them. Your mind is a rebellious slave at best. A rebellious slave at best. Always trying to reassert its will. Always trying to take over. Always trying to master you. It's a rebellious slave. But listen, there is absolutely no tyranny like the tyranny of a rebellious slave that is allowed to be a master. That's tyranny. So you have a choice. You can either determine that your mind is going to be your slave or that your mind is going to be your master. And if you want to allow your mind to be your master... Woe unto you. Woe unto you. You have got a life ahead of you that is filled with turmoil and vexation and worry and guilt and anxiety and pain and anguish like you cannot even imagine right now. And it will only get worse. So you must say, I will make my mind do my bidding. I will make it my slave. It will be a rebellious slave my whole life, but it will be my slave nonetheless. And I will discipline it and I will rule it, and I will master it, and I will do it by the grace of God, with His help, and I know that when I practice these things, the God of peace will be with me. He will be with me, and He'll help us in it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You for the grace of Christ which has been brought down to us. We thank You that we have been sanctified by Your Word and that You continue that process of sanctification. It is our desire that we would honor you in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, and it is the heart's cry of every child of God that we, we anguish over sin, we hate it, we wish that we didn't have to wrestle it, we wish that we didn't have to battle it, we wish that we could be free from this body of death. But we know, God, that in the process of our struggle that you are working in us something great, and we pray, God, that you would give to us the grace to discipline our minds, to make all of our members slaves of righteousness. And we pray that we would be encouraged and that we would be strengthened to that end in order that you might be glorified, not just by our deeds, but by our motives, our thoughts, and our desires, that they may all serve to glorify 
our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.